home, off to children's church they go. Off to children's church they go. Cooper and Jesse weren't very excited. They had to stay home. They missed children's church. I sound a little croaky this morning. I did the rapid test. I did the Q-tip up the nose, and that tickled. <laughs> Chantel's like, you're checking before you go. I'm like, I guess I'll check before I go. I'm still croaky. Luckily, no one sits in the first five rows, so we're safe, eh? I'll aim this way. Our church is funny. I grew up uh, in Kelstern, and I'm trying to remember, we sat in row number Oh, man, three, four. Like, we were close. Now, Kelston only has, like, 12 rows. So, like, I don't know, 10? And we were probably in three. Yeah, maybe 10. And we were probably in three. So, like, we were pretty close. Pretty much like the people singing on the worship team were ahead of us. And that was about it. Listen to this. This is from a devotion that I was reading. It's about prayer. And I think this will tie in very nicely to Jesus being the good shepherd and us hearing his voice. Prayer is one of God's sweetest gifts to us. The command to pray is itself a sweet and loving gift from a gracious and caring Heavenly Father. Prayer is where God welcomes his children to talk with him, commune with him, abide with him. It's that holy place where the deepest of worship, the deepest of needs, and the most honest of confessions all intersect with the grandeur and glory of divine love. Prayer only works when worshipers are invited into the presence of one worthy of their worship. It only works when the one being prayed to is amazingly patient, boundless in love, constantly forgiving, sovereign in power. For prayer to be prayer, God has to be God. Without this, prayer is an act of religious futility. But God is God. He has invited us to bring our true selves to him. It's not an invitation to bring him a catalog of our self-oriented desires as if he were little more than a cosmic delivery system for whatever cravings consume us at the moment. No, the heart of prayer is worshipful submission to him which produces gratitude, it produces humility, vision, and willingness. Without adoration and submission, Prayer is reduced to a set of demands that make it look as if we are God's. And God's job is to submit his almighty power to our lordship. That one hit me this morning. Listen to that again. Without adoration and submission, prayer is reduced to a set of demands that make it look as if we are God's. And God's job is to submit his almighty power to our lordship. It's shocking to consider that what appears to be our most conscious Godward act can actually be evidence of our ongoing idolatry. So this devotion recommended praying first with adoration. What do you adore about God? And then it said pray with confession. What do you need to bring before him? Humility, right? Confession. The next pray 
with a submissive attitude, not my will, but yours be done. And then bring before him supplication for yourself and for other people. Bring your needs before him, for he cares for you. What does it look like to be a sheep in God's fold, to hear his voice and listen to him? If you were to say that the number one way we hear from God is to pray to God, what does your prayer life look like? And as I read that devotion, I thought to myself, boy, I should be careful because I love supplication. God, help me with this and help me with this and I know you love me, help take care of this. But I'm slower to pray prayers of what I adore about him, to pray your will be done instead of mine, to come before him and admit all my weaknesses and confession. I'm slower to those. I'm quicker to the needs that come to my mind that day. This is John. This is chapter 10. And in the second half of chapter 10, Jesus is wrapping up his formal ministry before the resurrection of Lazarus and his trip into Jerusalem to be arrested and killed. So far in the, jo- in the Gospel of John, the John of the Gospel, in the Gospel of John, we've been reading from 1 to 10, and it has been a constant display of his works and his power. At the very beginning, you remember this in John 1. John the Baptist was going to come to be a witness to Jesus. He was going to be the light of the world. People were going to see this light in a dark world. It was going to reveal that God had come to tabernacle among the people. So it started. In chapter 2, water became wine. It started. Worship got turned upside down at the temple. It started. He spoke with Nicodemus about what true life looks like. And then in chapter 4, showed incredible love to a Samaritan, an outcast, and revealed his identity as Messiah. In chapter 5, he went to the pool And he healed a man who couldn't walk on the Sabbath in front of all the people to see the power of God on display. Chapter 6, he took the bread and he gave it to thousands of people after he had prayed over it. And all those people were fed. An act of his power, a display of his witness, testimony, testimony, testimony. It's building to chapter 7 and 8 when he shows up for the festival of tabernacles and the Pharisees go after him. Viciously go after him. Prove yourself. You claim to be this God, but we don't believe it. How can we trust your testimony? There's no proof. There's no evidence. We don't buy it. We don't want it. In chapter 7 and 8, build to chapter 9. What will Jesus do? Is there any way left to show who he truly is? And what happens in chapter 9? Jesus takes a little bit of spit, makes a little bit of mud, places it on those eyes, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Tells the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he goes, and he's sent, and he washes his eyes, and he comes back seeing. Something divine has happened. Something divine has happened. The Pharisees, though, they don't want it. They reject it. Even though this sign is such a clear demonstration of Jesus being the one sent from God, The Messiah, which means the anointed one. Remember, before a king would become king, he would be anointed. David, anointed by Samuel. It was this process, and Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ. They don't want it, though. 
So through chapter nine, we go and they argue with him again. And it comes into chapter 10. And he says, the reason why you don't believe what I'm saying is that you are spiritually blind. You're spiritually blind. I'm the shepherd who has been sent to give his life for the people. And yet the other people, certain sheep, they hear my voice and they walk away. It's as if I'm a stranger to them. Other people, though, they hear my voice and they come to me. They recognize it. I know them. They know me. As a parent, you probably recognize this. If someone in church, let's pretend it's after church. Your kids are goofing off and running around the service or running around the sanctuary. And somebody yells, Cooper. He turns and he looks. That wasn't dad. And he keeps on going. But if dad yells, Cooper, (laughs) freezes, eh? Uh Uh-oh. I recognize that voice. He knows that voice. Why? He's mine. He knows that voice. Jesus keeps saying this. They're going to hear my voice and know it. I know them, they know me. They'll hear my voice. So here you have this man born blind who is worshiping. I hear you. You're Messiah, Lord God. And standing right beside him, people who have memorized the Torah since they were kids. And that voice means nothing to them. It's a stranger calling their name. The story that we're going to read today is chapter 10, verse 22 to the end. This is the festival of dedication. I always call it Hanukkah. This is the festival of dedication. This is two months past Jesus' appearance at the Feast of Tabernacles. Two months later, he comes back to the city And you're going to see the questions that they have for him. Excuse me. The festival of dedication. Okay, a little bit of context, because not all of us have studied Hanukkah before. Have you studied Hanukkah? I had never studied Hanukkah. The festival of dedication wasn't found in the early parts of the Old Testament. It wasn't commanded by God. It was created after 165 BC. So that's about 150 years before Jesus Judas Maccabeus leads a revolt and they cleanse the temple. The Assyrians, Greek Assyrians at that time, the Greek Empire, with the lead of Antiochus Epiphanes, had started sacrificing pigs on the altar. They had taken a false god and placed an idol in the temple. They had desecrated it. And the Jews weren't going to stand for it. Weren't going to stand for it no more. And this gentleman leads a revolt And they revolt back and they fight back and they cleanse their temple. It's made holy. The idols taken out. And they find just a little bit of oil left as the story goes. And they light the candle. And the candle lasts for eight days with this tiny little amount of oil as they go to make more pure olive oil fit for the temple. So now in Hanukkah, they light their eight candles to celebrate the eight days the candle never went out. At this time, this is, like I said, 150 to 200 years past that cleansing of the temple. And they're celebrating this. They call it the festival of dedication. They rededicated the temple to worship. What you're going to notice is here's Jesus walking around at this festival. And people are starting to worship him as God. They're starting to claim that he is Yahweh. That God is in him and he's in God. But just 200 years earlier, they stormed the temple. They got rid of the false god, drawing worship away from Yahweh. 
And now here shows up this teacher from this backwater town. And people are bowing down. People are worshiping him. We can't have this. We remember what happened last time when there's an idol placed in our temple. We can't have this. This is a sensitive moment for Jesus to show up. He'd be walking around at the temple, but he's there. Let's read some of these verses. And we'll see what happens as Jesus appears. This is verse 22 and following. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. Okay, so that was the eastern side of the temple. There was a covered uh, walkway. It had pillars and a roof, and that's where Jesus was walking. The Jews, who were there gathered around Jesus, saying this, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. This is a tense moment. They've tried to kill him multiple times and he's escaped their grasp. This is a tense moment. The next time he comes back into the city, he's going to die. And they've surrounded him. Tell us who you are. Tell us right now. And Jesus answered, I did. I did. I did tell you, but you don't believe the works I do in my Father's name, they testify about me. They're my testimony, he says. They're the witness. They're telling the story. Didn't you see any of them? Recorded, after recorded story. God doing something through me that I'm not capable of. What more do you want? Just tell us plainly. What's the first thing they're going to say if Jesus says, I am exactly who I claim to be. I'm God. They're going to say, prove it. All of my proof I've given you, all of it, all it cries out is I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God, the one sent from the Father. But you don't hear it. This is verse 26. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep, they listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. You're not my sheep. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father were one. We're one. But you don't get it. Because your heart isn't soft to the gospel. You have chosen to elevate yourself to the position of God. You worship you. Your prayers are about you. Your offerings are about you. We have evidence of that through the gospels of how the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and the people that confronted Jesus, how they lived. We have evidence of that. So Jesus shows up and reveals the power of Yahweh through him and everyone just goes, that's weird. Sure be nice if he'd give us some evidence. Something like only God could do, like healing the eyes of a man born blind. That'd be helpful. Heal some lepers maybe by touching them. If he would just do something like that, maybe we would all know. They're just blind. They're just blind. 
And all of this is building towards chapter 11, the center of the book. I can't spoil all of it. Some of you probably never read John. You're like, what's chapter 11? Just kidding. It's Lazarus. You know that. It's so exciting. Again, his Jewish opponents, this is verse 31, they picked up stones. They're going to stone him to death. This is the death sentence. And Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Which one am I worthy of the death sentence for? Which work? Tell me which one. Was it making mud on the Sabbath, healing the man on the Sabbath, multiplying the bread? Which one do you think is worthy of death? In verse 33, they reply, we're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, you claim to be God. Now here, this is confusing. Jesus is going to reply back to them with a very obscure quote from Psalm 82. Let's read through this, and if it confuses you a little bit, I'll try my best to explain it, but it confused me too when I was studying it. So Jesus answers them in verse 34. Is it not written in your law? Now here's the quote. I have said you are gods, lowercase g. That's the quote. If he called them gods, lowercase g, pay attention to that, to whom the word of God came and scripture, it can't be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? What about him? Psalm 82, for context, was written against the judges and rulers of Israel. They were doing a very poor job leading the country. And God speaks to them and says, Oh, you, you are gods, but you care not for the people. You are gods, but your morals and your character are flawed. You, gods of the people, and yet you are mere mortals, you die. I, Yahweh, am everlasting. So he keeps referring to them like this. And Jesus goes, if God the Father can look at them and use the word God, don't you think it's fitting for the one who's been anointed and sent from him, from his throne room down to earth? Don't you think that title of son of God is fitting of me? Don't you think? Being their understanding of the Jewish scripture, I wonder if this had a lot more impact on them than it does on me as I'm reading this. This is verse 36, about partway through. It says, why then? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I'm God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. Verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. No idea how fast he was, but they just couldn't get him. Off he goes. Even if you don't believe the words that I say, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. And as I'm thinking this through, I'm thinking about my own life and I'm thinking about you, my church family, and I'm thinking, is this the case for us? How many times have I said to God, just tell me plainly? And God goes, it's visible in what I've done. 
my prayer life. I just read from my devotional book. God, I need your help here, here, and here, and God doesn't come through. And you can so easily question God's goodness and faithfulness and love. I prayed. I was anxious. I was depressed. I brought these things before you. You wake up the next morning, still there. You say, God, just tell me plainly, are you real? Are you not? Do you not care? Do you not love me? The actions don't line up with the words. I want a result and I'm not getting it. I wonder if Jesus is just waiting for me to wake up and see. I've testified to you through my works. Look at them. You question my faithfulness? Look at my works. Look how I went to the cross for you, a price that you couldn't pay. You question my goodness and love? Look at the good shepherd who laid down his life. You question whether I can heal the body. Look at the, the moments where I did. You question whether I can provide for you financially. Your family's struggling. Don't you remember, Darren, the time that I multiplied the bread for 5,000 people? My works are such a powerful testimony, and yet I'm standing in front of him, begging him to just tell me plainly. God, most often, though, speaks in pain and hardship. Now, that's me sharing my own experience. I feel like it's common. But we pray that God would take pain and hardship away, and then what happens? God speaks through it. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. Are you listening? Are you listening? What's he saying? Let's read the last couple verses which beautifully close this chapter. Verse 40. John 10 says this. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan, the Jordan River, to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed. And many people came to him they said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in him. Which is such a cool bookmark that kind of marks the ending of this movement of John. Do you remember chapter one? When it said very clearly that John wasn't the light, but he was sent to be a witness about the light. His role wasn't to do signs. He wasn't the light sent from God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And as Jesus goes back to that safe place on the opposite side of the Jordan, there people are coming to him. And they're saying what John said was true. He was the witness. His testimony was accurate and valid. This is the anointed one, and people are believing. And I think that says something to us. That this opening phase of the book from chapter one to here has come full circle. And if you look at the way John is laid out, you're going to quickly realize that Lazarus seems to be this moment that all the signs are building towards, and then everything that follows, his arrest and death, is a result of his resurrection of Lazarus. It seems to hold a very special place in the storyline.
Though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. It comes back to speaking through pain. This is just what I've been thinking about this week. I had a really good visit with a friend of mine on Thursday, and he is going through pain, real pain. And anxiety is, is strong in his life. And he's sharing how much it's affecting him, how bad it's gotten, and I'm listening. And he's wondering why. Why when I pray this doesn't go away? Why if God loves me is this a result? You can tell. It's a wrestle. Why? Why would he allow this to remain? I just want to be in control. I want to pray. I want it to go away. And yet God allows it to remain. I wonder what God is trying to say. I wonder if he's listening. Because when the shepherd speaks, you'll hear his voice. But sometimes when he's speaking in a moment of pain, you have to tune your ear to listen. You're distracted. And just like I said in the devotion that your prayer life can very quickly become you elevating yourself to a position of God, saying, God, here's my list of things this week that I need you to do as my servant. Go do them, please. And prayer is supposed to be us coming before him and acknowledging that he is mighty and he is powerful and we don't have the right to be in his throne room without the covering of Jesus. And yet we snap our fingers sometimes at him. Why won't he do this? We're waiting for him to speak plainly. Lazarus, oh, you can't spoil it. It's going to be so much fun next week. You can't spoil it. Lazarus, I think, is the answer to so many of these questions. I have to just a little bit. I have to. You can't tell this story and then not. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Lazarus. Mm, Yes, okay. Chapter 11, verse 4. If you got your Bibles, you can flip there. I didn't put this in the slides. This is just for fun. Chapter 11, verse 4. When Jesus heard this, that's what it says, when he heard this, that Lazarus is sick, Jesus replied this way, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And if you jump to verse 14, he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead and for your sake I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. Do you remember in chapter 20 the purpose of John's gospel? Chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. We've read this so many times. John writes at the end of his gospel, this is the purpose. He writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are. What's he saying these are? These signs. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These signs are written so that you will see that he is who he claims to be, and in him you'll find life.
Are you listening? Are you standing at the door and knocking and saying, just tell me. And he's saying, look at what I've done. Look at my works. How about your life? What's the pain and hardship you're going through that I'm going through? Is God speaking? Are we listening? He says, Darren, in your life, I brought in suffering. It's going to create perseverance and character and hope in you. Listen to me. And I'm saying, God, just take it away. It's too much. Lazarus is going to be such the the pinnacle of that whole movement because they're saying, just tell us if your works would just confirm who you are. And Jesus, four days after Lazarus has died, is going to perform an act of Yahweh. He is going to take dead, dirt, flesh, and he's going to breathe life back into it. And everyone there is going to be stunned because God showed up and it's undeniable. And the very next paragraph says, and they decided how they were going to arrest him and kill him. They couldn't let this continue. It was undeniable. And the sheep were listening. They were hearing and they were believing. So it was time for his execution. Then they arrest him and execute him. I want to pray for you as a church family before we go. Father in heaven, I adore you. I adore what you've done for me. I adore who you are, your character, your holiness, your patience with me, the offering of grace. I adore these things. I adore your faithfulness. Even in my pain and in my hardship, I adore these things about you that never change. I confess, Lord Jesus, that I'm a sinful man, that I pray for selfish things and I demand things of you that aren't right. I treat people poorly sometimes and I say things that I shouldn't. I think things that I shouldn't. I'm selfish and I'm prideful and I'm greedy. Sometimes I'm just angry and hurtful. Please forgive me. Father, I submit to your will. I submit to your will that your will would be done in my life. I remember the story Jesus is praying in the garden and he's begging for another way because this way, he just hurt too much. And at the end of begging three times for another way, he said, not my will, but yours be done. So Lord Jesus, in my pain, I'll go through this if it's what you want, even if it's not what I want. And Lord, I pray that you would take care of me and my family and my church, that you would guide us, Lord Jesus, towards holiness and righteousness, towards you, towards sharing the gospel with people, that people would see the signs and the wonders that you've done the way you've changed our lives, they would know you, hear your voice, and they would find life. I pray that that would happen. That our focus would slowly and continually come off of ourselves. Boy, we like to think about ourselves. I do it all the time. And our focus would go on other people. Help us to love you well, Lord Jesus. 
to love you well, Father, to submit and love you, Holy Spirit, and help us to love one another better. Help us to lay down our lives for other people. Help us, Lord, to listen. And I pray that you would speak to us. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' holy name. We're going to sing together before we go.